In today's episode, we will be discussing the life and legacy of Madame de Berry, the final royal mistress of King Louis XV of France. Discussing Madame du Barry today with me will be Dr. Christine Adams, a historian that focuses on French family and gender history and is the author of the book The Creation of the French Royal Mistress, From Agnes Sorel to Madame du Barry. Continue listening to learn more. mistress has existed in society for centuries, but the French royal mistress created an entirely new position for women within the royal courts throughout Europe. They were no longer there just for the king's sexual pleasure, but many royal mistresses began playing active roles in politics, a role often barred from the queen. The mistresses of the French kings are some of the most iconic and recognizable. Madame de Pompadour, Agnes Sorel, Madame de Montespan, Madame de Maintenon, and Diane de Poitiers. These are just a few of the hundreds of women who came to dominate the French court. In many cases, they all shared a similar background. Daughters of minor nobility who knew the ways of a royal court and played their parts accordingly. However, in the waning years of the French monarchy, one woman scandalized the French court by coming not from nobility, but from the working class. Jean Bessou, later known as Madame du Barry, was a self-made woman, if you will, who achieved wealth and infamy by supposedly rising from a brothel to King Louis XV's bed. Depicted both during her lifetime and after as a vulgar social-climbing courtesan, Madame du Barry has rarely gotten a fair depiction. However, when truly analyzed, what she was able to achieve by the age of 26 is nothing less than astonishing. Jean Bessou's life did not look promising at birth. Born in 1743 to a single mother, Anne Bessou, and an unidentified father, Jean was in an unforgiving position. Illegitimate children have rarely fared well in the pages of history. There were numerous potential dark paths awaiting Jean, infanticide at the hands of her mother, sex work, thieving, indentured servitude, or hard labor. In a stroke of luck, a man named Monsieur Billard de Monceau, one of Anne Bessieu's supposed lovers, took pity on the abandoned mother and child. Anne was given the position of cook in Monsieur de Monceau's household, and Jean was educated at the local convent, Couvent de Saint-Auré. At the age of 15, Jean left the convent, and her mother was evicted from the de Monceau's household, prompting their move to Paris. When Jean arrived in Paris, she was already blossoming into the arresting beauty that she would be remembered as. A petite woman with thick blonde curls and almond-shaped blue eyes, Jean began attracting attention soon after moving into Paris. Rumors from her lifetime said it was during this period that her life in the sex trade began. While she was accused of coming from a brothel, it seems that from the beginning, Jean gravitated towards sexual relationships with wealthy and influential men. 
Around 1763, Jean came to the attention of casino owner and high-class pimp Jean-Baptiste Dubarry. He introduced Jean to the life of a courtesan and the influential position she could inhabit in the role. During her rise through the parlors of Paris, Jean began relationships with high-ranking men, such as Duc de Richelieu and the treasurer of the Royal Navy, Maximilien Racti de Saint-Foy, in addition to her benefactor's older brother, Comte de Berry. It was during a visit to Versailles with Duc de Richelieu in 1768 that Jean first came to the attention of the lonely King Louis XV of France. Louis's wife, Maria Linskaya, had died that same year, and his royal mistress, Madame de Pompadour, four years earlier. Louis began inviting Jean to his private apartments with growing frequency. However, the title of royal mistress, or maîtresse sans titre, could only be bestowed upon women with titles. As Dr. Christine Adams states, I mean, it's hard to say that any individual is typical. What is different about Dubarry is that her class origins are very different from previous royal mistresses. I mean, since the 15th century or 16th century, the royal mistress had been a member of the nobility. Um, not always the highest nobility, but, but a member of the nobility, which meant that nobody had to explain her presence at court, right? She had reason to be at court. She didn't have to be officially presented. And she had, she had a family whose status protected her in various ways. And that made it really easy for the relationship with the king to remain the sort of open secret, right? That she could she could be at court, she could sort of be moving in different spaces and nobody would question her presence there. But the tradition of choosing the royal mistress from among the ladies of the court comes to an end with Louis XV. And actually not first with Dubarry, it's first with um, Madame de Pompadour, whose, whose original name was um, Jean-Antoinette Poisson. Her last name means fish. Um, which caused a lot of merriment at the court. But um, anyway, so she's given the title of the, the Marquise de Pompadour and is raised to the position of the king's mistress. But once again, she has no other reason to be at court, right? So when she's presented, everybody knows that she is coming to court explicitly for the reason of becoming the king's mistress, right? Um, she Her background was, I mean, it wasn't that she came from low status. I mean, her father had made a fortune working in finance and and she had married into the sort of financial bourgeoisie, but still she wasn't from the nobility. Now, with Madame Dubarry, whose, whose name was Jean Bécu, um, her origins were yet more dubious. Her mother was a seamstress and cook from Lorraine. She was illegitimate. It was thought that her father was a monk, actually. And she is educated in a convent and then at the age of 15 leaves and, you know, she becomes a member of the, the, the Parisian demi-monde, basically. I mean, she works as a domestic servant first, then she becomes a boutiquière. She becomes the mistress eventually of the, uh, this Monsieur Dubarry, who sort of becomes her pimp as well. And he introduces her into to sort of these, these Parisian social circles where she meets and, and has affairs with, with wealthy noblemen, Richelieu, who meets her. Um, decides that he would she would be a good person to introduce to the king. And so that's how she gets access to the thing. So her, her background is pretty scandalous. Um, and that is very different from, that makes her not a typical mistress in that way. I mean, typical perhaps for women that Louis XV slept with. He, he slept with a whole, whole lot of women. But for the official position, that is unusual. When the king was made aware of Jean's dubious background, 
he commanded that she marry a titled nobleman so he could make her his official mistress. Jean was quickly married to Jean-Baptiste de Barry's brother, Guillaume, Comte de Berry, on the 1st of September, 1768, acquiring the name that would follow her into infamy, Madame du Barry. Madame du Barry was installed in luxurious accommodations above the king's apartment at the Chateau de Versailles. Her apartment consisted of 14 rooms and a private staircase leading directly into the king's bedroom. On the 22nd of April, 1769, Madame du Barry was presented at court and given the official title of maître sans titre, making her one of the most powerful women in France by the age of only 26. While the role of a royal mistress had been in existence for centuries, the maître sans titre was a solidly French creation. Here's Christine. So, so this is actually the, the, the creation and the tradition of the, the royal mistress. That's the subject of the book that, that Tracy Adams and I wrote. Um, it came out in 2020. And as far as we can tell, the position of the French royal mistress and the tradition that develops around it was really unique in, in the early modern European world. So, so why unique? The, the, the French royal mistress is a uniquely powerful position and, and tends to be a very political position, right? Um, she plays a very important political role in court. And, you know, obviously kings in other countries, <laughs> they had mistresses in, in the early modern era. But it's only in France that this becomes a tradition in a sense and, and, and what we refer to as, as an open secret that, that everybody at court knew <laughs> that she, she was the king's mistress and they knew that she was an important political confidant. And we know this because you see this in the correspondence of ambassadors. You know that people come to the mistresses for patronage, that they come to her to get access to the king. And so we see them playing this really, really important political role. Historians often refer to the most prominent of these mistresses, and this is the case with Dubarry, as, as the official mistress, which is a translation of the, the term maître sans titre, right? Which is a rather anachronistic term um, because the position is not called that really because, until Madame de Pompadour becomes the, the mistress in the 18th century. And of course, the role is never actually official. We call it an open secret because, like I said, the, the, the position is never really openly acknowledged, even though people know about it. And everybody acts in public as if everything is honorable. That's sort of what, what Catherine and see how she described it when talking about the end of Poitiers. We trace it back to the 16th century. Usually historians, they, they tag um, Agnès de Sorel as the, or Agnès Sorel as the first, as the first royal mistress. And there's a famous painting of her as the lactating virgin. There's a sort of um, mythology attached to her. But that is a creation of the 16th century. It's really in the court of Francis I that you start to see the French royal mistress emerge as this very politically important individual with the Duchess d'Etampes and then the son of Francis I, Henry II, his mistress is Diane de Poitiers. And those two women become extremely enmeshed in intrigues at court and they become allied with with political players but it's sort of in the process of that position emerging that they sort of hearken back to to Agnès Sorel and Agnès Sorel becomes the sort of image of the ideal French mistress in a way who's devoted to the king's interest who gets him gets him to fight to defend France and and, and so she has this sort of rosy image that that really powerfully articulated you know, through the 19th and even into the 20th century people continue to be interested in her I'd say the 16th century and after that there is really this expectation that kings will have a powerful mistress who is involved in politics not all kings do 
Um, and they don't have necessarily a mistress who plays that role throughout their entire reign. Louis XIV, for example, when he's young, his mother plays a really important role. And you never seem to have an, a, a powerful queen regent or mother at the same time that you have a powerful mistress. <laughs> it's like only room for one of those at court, in a sense. And so, so, but but the tradition had been set, and there is this expectation, and you do sort of see then this 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 tradition of the French royal mistress. People look to um, this woman who will be the the conduit to the king's favor, in a sense. And so Dubarry falls into that role. Madame Dubarry quickly acquired immense influence in Louis XV's court. This was a reality that horrified the French nobles, many of whom saw her as nothing better than a common prostitute, not a woman to involve herself in the running of the state. However, as Christine argues, Madame Dubarry was just fulfilling the expectations of a royal mistress. When she arrives at court in 1768, the expectation is already there that she's going to play a political role, even though she doesn't arrive at court with a deep interest in politics necessarily. It seems she was probably not quite as well read. She wasn't as interested in politics as a Madame de Pompadour, for example. Um, however, you know, she becomes very much embroiled in the fights among Louis XV's mistresses, notably the, um, the Duc de Choiseul, um, who was the king's chief minister, hates her. And he had wanted to find somebody else for that position. He had been very much linked to Madame de Pompadour. She has the sponsorship of the Duke of Richelieu and his nephew, the Duke of Aguillon. And there they, they sort of try to use her as a wedge to get rid of Choiseul. And, and they're successful. I mean, he, he's out of court by the end of 1770. So, so she gets involved in these factional politics. And, and in large part, it's because the stage had been set by the sort of previous genealogy of royal mistresses, and she's going to be allied with what's called the Barian faction at court until Louis' death in 1774. Madame Dubarry was a hated figure by both the nobility and the populace. For the populace, she personified all the gross decadence of the French court at Versailles, while for the nobility, she became a death knell, signaling their loss of being able to rely solely on their titles to succeed. Christine emphasizes the importance of looking at the context of the era Madame Dubarry was coming to power. Madame Dubarry, um, I, I knew about because I've been a scholar of the French Revolution for a long time. And so she comes up in the literature. Um, Robert Darnton had looked in particular at the, the Libelle literature, the sort of scandalous literature that, that appears in particular in the, the second half of the 18th century that you know, this sort of scurrilous, sexually explicit stuff <clears throat> that attacks the monarchy, that attacks the clergy, that attacks the aristocracy. But Madame Dubarry plays a sort of leading role in a lot of this literature. Um, so she was somebody who was associated with this scandal. And so, so I knew about her in that context, but it wasn't until I started doing the work on the royal mistresses that I started looking at her more specifically and, and you know, reading the... the um, the memoirs that talk about her, reading the the, <clears throat> the primary source literature that, that talks about her. And so you obviously get a very different picture of her from that than you get from the Liebel literature. The context of the 18th century. I mean, there's a lot of political change taking place over the course of the 18th century. The political culture in France is shifting dramatically, in part because of the the age of enlightenment and sort of the questioning of governmental and social structures. And part of that is this new demand for transparency on the part of the royal government. And 
you know, the royal mistresses represent a sort of old style of court politics that 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 demanded secrecy and 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 kept things hidden from the public and 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 now people are demanding accountability from from their rulers and so that becomes important to the machinations at court that that um, Dubarry is involved in and that the political activities of mistresses both like Pompadour and Dubarry cause a lot of outrage among the public and because they see the mistress being involved in politics, they blame the mistresses then for things that are going wrong. Um, so, so for example, Pompadour is blamed for the, the Austrian alliance that gets the French ensnared in the Seven Years' War, which is a political catastrophe for them. And Dubarry's handiwork is seen in the fall of the Duc de Choiseul and, and some other sort of nasty political fights that Louis XV gets involved in in the, the 1770s. And so she's blamed for a lot of that stuff. And, and then, of course, you, you throw into the mix the Libel literature that I was talking about with the, the discussion of their, their sexual behavior, and it becomes this really unsavory mix. And that's why I think both Pompadour and Dubarry especially become focal points for this sort of unhappiness that is brewing in France by the second half of the 17th century. And that bleeds into to public sentiment towards the king. And that's why, you know, a number of historians um, have argued that Marie Antoinette was, in a sense, both 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 queen and mistress, which did not serve her well, because then <laughs> people hated her for the fact that she was a queen and represented a foreign country. There's a fair amount of xenophobia in France at this point. Um, so they hate her for being a, a foreigner. Um, but they also hate her for the traits associated with the mistress, greed, you know, lack of interest in the problems of the people, the fact that she is debauching the king, all of these sort of things that they would attach to the mistress. And so, so she sort of is the focal point for their hatred on all levels. In addition, the growing pains for France that would culminate in the French Revolution were beginning as Madame Dubarry was taking her place by the king's side. Christine points out, Dubarry also suffered from the fact that she became Louis XV's mistress at a time that he was really unpopular. His policies were unpopular. The Seven Years' War had been disastrous. The political intrigues of the 1770s, he shuts down the sovereign courts of France for a while. That is really unpopular and also has to raise taxes to pay for war. And so so these things are really unpopular. So she gets linked to him at a time um, that he's unpopular. And then, of course, there's this tendency to assume that powerful men are negatively influenced by the women in their lives. And there is also this whole literature that emerges about Louis XV, that he's led by the nose um, by women, right? That they they govern France and that they have corrupted French politics because of that. That's part of the reason that during the French Revolution, you have such a negative reaction against women, an effort to sort of remove women from the political sphere because they're associated with women like um, royal mistresses and other female courtiers who are who are too interested in their own personal aggrandizement and not sufficiently interested in the good of France, right? She was a woman who was, you know, someone who made, who, who rose through the ranks using her, using the tools she had, right? And I think that um, I'm not inclined to be that critical of that. Um, I do think that there was another... Another factor as well, and this is something that Shaw Battelle wrote about in his three-volume biography of, of Dubarry, which is still probably the best account of her life and was written in 1883. I'd really like to see a new, a new sort of non-salacious biography of her. Um, but what he 
argues is that there was sort of a dramatic decline in public willingness to tolerate the sort of gallantry, as they call it, of the king by the late 18th century and the political implications of that. And this is this is what he said. I just want to read this quote. He says, Louis XV himself, young and victorious at Fontenoy, at Lafayette, at Rocco, had for a long time enjoyed indulgence, almost encouragement of his weakness. But that which seemed natural in 1740 was no longer possible in 1769. A quarter of a century had passed. Social behavior that had been reconsidered in the works of Montesquieu, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, of Mably. The same practices, or let us say the same abuses as tolerated under Madame de Pompadour would arouse the public conscience against the subsequent royal offense with Madame du Barry. So she came at a time that people are just not willing to tolerate that kind of behavior on the part of kings. Despite her own popularity, Madame du Barry was able to retain her role as royal mistress until Louis XV's death on the 10th of May, 1774, from smallpox. Madame du Barry had been sent away from Versailles in the king's final days, both for her protection against infection and also so that the king could receive the last rites. After Louis's death and his grandson's ascension as Louis XVI, the new queen, Marie Antoinette, exiled Madame du Barry from Versailles. She was moved to a convent where she was kept for two years. After her release, Madame du Barry moved to Chateau de la Vaucienne, gifted to her by Louis XV. Life found a quiet rhythm in the later years of Madame du Barry's life. She commissioned numerous paintings and architectural projects as well as meeting regularly with her close friend Voltaire. However, Madame du Barry's life was thrown into turmoil in 1789 with the start of the French Revolution. Despite her strained relationship with Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, Madame du Barry remained a staunch royalist throughout the revolution. She watched in horror and terror as her former lover's grandson was imprisoned, tried, and eventually executed by guillotine. Marie Antoinette would follow her husband a few months later. Madame du Barry, having had such a close connection to the French monarchy, was seen as a traitor to the revolution. And in 1793, her story took a dark turn. Here's Christine. Just shortly after um, Marie Antoinette, um, she's accused of you know, consorting with emigres and treason. They go after correspondence. She actually had in her household a young black servant who I think was from from India and might have been of African origins. But but anyway, so she brings him up. This was actually a fashion at the French court to have these these young black boys and girls as, as part of a part of their court. And anyway, Zamor, when he grows up, becomes angry at his treatment and he actually testifies against her at the trial before the Revolutionary Tribunal that, that sends her to the guillotine. So he becomes a Jacobin. He becomes involved in the revolution. Yeah, so she goes to the guillotine, and it's really an awful, awful story. I mean, because most most um, political figures and royal figures who go to the guillotine do it very stoically. You know, Marie Antoinette does. Um, they have they they in a very dignified fashion, and and Dubarry has to be like dragged on the scaffold, screaming and saying, "Don't do this to me! Why are you hurting me? Why are you doing this?" and you know, I didn't do anything. And and it's really sort of shocking to the public. And I, I can't remember where I read it, but um, one historian said, you know, if more people had died like that, the terror might have ended much sooner because that was actually hard for people to, to, to watch. 
because you know there there are there is this whole literature about you know the people who go to the guillotine and their last words and you know the Girondins who who mounted the scaffold singing the Marseillaise and and Manon Roland saying you know oh oh liberty the crimes that are committed in your name and and you know so so you know this sort of you know edifying end and this was not edifying this was this was shocking and traumatic. Look at Deberry. What is she wearing now? Another one of her exotic fantasies. She can't pass a mirror without seducing it. Do you think she's wearing enough jewelry? <laughs> Never enough for Duberry. She's coming. Mm-hmm. That was a scene from the popular 2006 film Marie Antoinette. In that film, Madame Dubarry is portrayed as nothing more than a vulgar, self-absorbed, sexually promiscuous mean girl. This is not a depiction that is unique to Madame Dubarry. Royal mistresses have rarely received a positive portrayal in Hollywood. Christine discusses the role of the royal mistress in media. With all these portrayals of, of royal mistresses that you're finding in the media these days, um, I don't know if you've seen The Serpent Queen, the, the, recent, the recent series about Catherine de Medici, and Diane de Poitiers. The portrayal is terrible. I mean, she, she looks, you know, she's not particularly attractive as portrayed, although the, the actress portrays her is actually really attractive. The way they, they portray her is, is just sort of silly and not very smart and, and a horrible human being. And that's just not at all the kind of person she was. And with Dubar, they never find somebody who's as attractive as it sounds like she really was. And they never find somebody who has the personality that you assume that she had. And so I'm always bothered by the, the treatment of these people in movies. She's often portrayed as being sort of crass and, and lower class. And, and she was, and, and, and not very bright, you know? And th- that was not true. Um, despite her her origins, she was very elegant. I mean, she had good taste. Um, and you know, because of the fact that she had been brought into these circles of elite men, she learns how to, to be very comfortable in that elite society. And it also appears that she was, in fact, quite intelligent. And here, you know, the, the, the memoirs are always mixed. And, and one of the problems when you're reading about somebody like Dubarry is sort of like, sorting through the evidence and trying to say, okay, what are the primary sources? What are the secondary sources? Who actually knew her? What's their political agenda? What are they trying to say? So a lot of a lot of memoir, memoirists say that she was not very interested in politics. And yet, it seems like she was able to figure things out that even Pompadour was not able to. She was able to figure out some sort of um, foreign policy machinations that Louis XV was involved in. So it appears that she was, in fact, more intelligent than people have given her credit for, when, when you know, it's just so much more interesting and complicated than that. You know, the thing that I found really interesting was apparently what a nice person she was. I mean, this is something that, you know, the court observers comment on almost to a person. I mean, except there, there's a few who really don't like her and they have come aren't going to say that but in general you know the anecdotes about her the stories about her was you know that she was good natured that she didn't hold a grudge that she um tried to help people out they they, they contrast her frequently with madame de pompadour who had been louis XV's mistress um preceding her for 20 years and madame de pompadour um not forgive people and did hold grudges and did go after people who who offended her right um, I forget who said it, but but that that Dubari was more likely to sort of laugh it off when she heard this sort of scurrilous these scurrilous things about her, and when she asked the king for favors, I mean, there's a 
there's an anecdote about her that one of the first things she asked was for him to pardon this couple that had been convicted of killing a uh, police officer when they were trying to defend their house and they had been sentenced to death. And she sort of falls on her knees before him and says, I'm not going to get up until you promise to pardon them. And he says, you know, Madam, I'm, I'm delighted that my first, your first request of me is for an act of mercy. And so she's, she's painted in those, in, in that light. And I think that that's not what one usually expects to hear about a French royal mistress, so. These more positive aspects of Madame Dubarry are often overshadowed by the more scandalous and quote, interesting interpretations of her life. Madame Dubarry often takes on a physical representation of the debasement of the French monarchy in its final years. As French author Auguste Dietrich stated in his 1881 book, de Louis Cannes. She was a ridiculous spendthrift, showing luxurious extravagance reminiscent of the insane whims of that other dangerous siren, Cleopatra. While people died of hunger, a brazen trollop purchased objects. Here is Christine on why she thinks Madame Dubarry's legacy has remained unchanged for so long. Well, I think in part it's because of the context of her rise and fall, you know, the context of the French Revolution. So everybody, everything is, the, the history of the 18th century for so long has been seen in this teleological fashion that you look at it as leading directly to the French Revolution. So she is implicated in that, right? She's linked with an unpopular king. She's held responsible in part for these political disasters that set the stage for revolution. And she and the minister she's allied with, you know, in, in court politics, are symbols of this despotic, rapacious government, right? Then add into the mix that you have these 19th and 20th century historians who write about her, who have very particular views about women and the role that women should play, right? And these historians also all tend to make use of the same sources. They make uncritical use of memoirs, sometimes forged ones. They use chronicles and correspondence and ambassadors reports that are usually pretty misogynistic, that are full of self-serving political agendas. And you would hope that modern historians would be more careful about this. But even today, you know, historians too often accept these earlier assessments and rely in a pretty credulous fashion on these problematic and sometimes fake sources. Now, with Dubarry in particular, right? And once again, this represents a change in the treatment of earlier mistresses, the graphic and these sexually explicit attacks on her, you know, that represents something new in public discourse, and it's related in part to the fact that she was previously a courtesan, right? That she had been a sex worker. But um, I think that all of those factors have sort of led to her being perceived even today in this fairly negative light by people who, who just have sort of tangential knowledge of her. She, strangely enough, becomes associated in a way with with the deeply unpopular Marie Antoinette as you know a spendthrift who has much in, too much influence over French politics and you know Dubarry's Dubarry the fact that Dubarry symbolizes the, the 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 debasement of the monarchy at the hands of a woman is going to sort of be her legacy to Marie Antoinette which is interesting given the fact that Marie Antoinette hated her Marie Antoinette arrived at court and she was appalled to find out that this this you know, woman of ill repute had so much influence over the king and refused for a really long time to have anything to do with her or to talk to her. And this actually caused this this huge political um, 
problem at court because Louis XV was getting angry with her and that would have implications for his relations with the Austrians more generally. And so her mother and the, the Austrian ambassador at court um, were telling Marie Antoinette, you know, you really need to talk to her. You really need to, to smooth things over here. So finally, one day at court, she, she says sort of in the vicinity of, of Dubarry, so there are a lot of people at Versailles today. And so that was seen as her overture, you know, to, to smooth things over. But, 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 you know, she hated her. And as soon as Louis XV died of smallpox in 1774, Dubarry was exiled from court. And actually spent a year in a convent after that before she was allowed to leave um, because of this animosity that Marie Antoinette and Louis had towards her. Interestingly enough, though, you know, and this once again sort of says something about her unwillingness to hold a grudge. Um, Dubarry remains a royalist and, and sympathetic to both Louis and Marie Antoinette as the revolution is starting and and sort of offers offers them support. And it, it is an interesting link to Marie Antoinette. And of course, they die in the same way. Well, for the last 10 years, I've devoted my scholarly career to sort of trying to undo the damage that was done by 19th and 20th century male historians who have gleefully trashed the reputations of women, right? Or have fundamentally misunderstood their role, um, their motives, their contributions. And so, I mean, that was part of what Tracy and I were trying to do in the, the book on the creation of the French royal mistress to just try to get through all of those misconceptions and to try to go back to the original sources to understand what was written about these women at the time. What do we have evidence for? What do we actually have proof for? And then, you know, to look at that proof and, and, and with a skeptical eye still, but at least to try to discount so much of the, the gossip that has dominated the stories about these women that that you know because of the fact that the position of a royal mistress is by its nature somewhat scandalous right that seems to permeate every discussion of them i think that with madame dubarry especially given that so much of the source literature on her is that sort of um that that scurrilous sexual stuff it it it's really hard to get at her and so so that is part of what I've tried to do in my own research, you know, not just with Dubari, but other women as well. Madame Dubari and others held a uniquely powerful role in a royal court ruled by Salic law, which states that women cannot ascend the throne in their own right. Madame Dubari utilized her gifts of beauty and intelligence to secure a position for herself up until Louis XV's death. This is what Christine argues should be Madame Dubari's legacy. As she states, she was a young woman who made use of the gifts she had. She was a remarkable beauty. And why not? I mean, people, you know, if you think of how the majority of people lived in the early modern world under terrible conditions and, you know, why not make use of the gift you have, the beauty you have to to carve out a more pleasant life. I mean, people have the right to draw on the social or capital that they have. She has a pleasant personality. She apparently had some skill as a lover, um, something that Louis XV was apparently really, really happy about because he had not had much experience with women who had sexual experience. And, and so there, there is speculation that that was part of the reason that he was so besotted with her late in life. Um, Madame de Pompadour was totally uninterested in sex and found it really unpleasant. And so, 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 and then, and then the, the, the mistresses that were brought to Louis XV at the Pacosef, the, the place that he would be united with these young women, 
you know, a 15 year old with no sexual experience is not going to be a particularly pleasant experience necessarily. And so, so she was somebody who did have, you know, experience in this world and, and he was apparently, um, quite, quite drawn in by this. So, so just, you know, she's a human being. I mean, she is a nice person. She has, um, probably blinders and flaws, but, um, you know, who doesn't? So, you know, and, and if not for her position, she probably would not be of interest to people, but, but she, because, because she was blessed with these gifts of beauty and drew the attention of a king, you know, there it is. You know, I guess I would say she's a woman of her time. Um, she makes the best of her situation. Um, I don't think there's any sort of particular feminist lens to see that through. I think that we judge people by the standards of their time and, and don't try to turn them into something that they, they were not for good or for bad.